I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ghost Maps was recorded on Audio-Technica mics. Ghost Maps. A group of National Service boys walks past us, heading down to the bus interchange to take the shuttle to the ferry terminal. It's around 8 in the evening, and Ben and I are in the food court of the White Sands Mall. We smile as we catch snippets of their conversations about strict sergeants, physical fitness tests, rifle ranges, and where they're getting posted after they finish basic training. One particular thread stands out to us, though. You ever hear about the lady in white? A bespectacled recruit asks his friends. One of them says he saw her sitting near the pull-up bars. Another swears he saw her in the reflection of the mirror in the toilet. Ben and I chuckle as they trail off. He tells me that some variation of that story has been floating around for years. I tell him that the bunk with three doors is the one I hear most often. Ben is an old friend of my mentor. The lines on his face are gentler than my mentor's were. He knew what my mentor did and what I do now. But he never really joined in, choosing instead to start a family. His son's about my age now. He's expecting his third grandchild soon. Ben does have one story to share, though. It's one that he's told my mentor before, but he thinks it's worth recounting it again for me, personally, considering its significance. He says that so many stories come out of Tikung. What he offers is a possible reason for that. And before I can chime in, he gives me a cheeky wink and tells me, He'll start at the beginning. Ben had been camping on Takong with a couple of friends, including my mentor, since the early 70s. Back then, there were still a lot of people living on the island, mostly Hakka fishermen or farmers and their families. And there were also quite a few temples around. On Ben and his friends' first trip to the island, A lady in her late 40s that they would get to know over the years as Auntie Sumoy told them to head to the temple of the sun deity. She said that they needed to give their thanks for the protection that the deity offered. Ben, a young and brash man then, was about to say that he wasn't Buddhist. He was going to say that he didn't need protection and that his wits and his own abilities were enough to keep him safe. But he didn't, because my mentor stepped in first and said to Auntie Sumoy, in a warm and gracious tone 
Of course, auntie. Thank you. On the walk over to the temple, my mentor told Ben and the rest of the group that this wasn't about faith. It was about respect. And that he added, knowingly, that this place required a kind of protection that none of them would be able to comprehend. The group had a great weekend camping on Tekong. No trouble. Nothing out of the ordinary. Just the kind of fun that they would all remember for the rest of their lives. And it would continue that way for most of the decade. Then, the late 70s rolled around and plans were made for the island to be turned into a military training centre. One by one, the temples chose to shut their doors. And as time went on, those camping trips started to feel different. It would start with noises that the group has never heard before, coming from the treetops. Nothing more than that. When there were just three temples left on the island, however, Ben's friends would claim that they could see things moving in the shadows at night. Ben would tell them that it was probably just some nocturnal animals emboldened by the fact that the island had fewer people. But then the rest of the group would look at my mentor. He wouldn't say anything. He didn't need to. And after that, the group grew smaller and smaller each visit. By the time the Temple of the Sun Deity was the only temple left, only Ben and two of his friends were still willing to go camping on Tekong. My mentor refused to follow them. The very last time they camped out on the island, the three of them were greeted by Auntie Sumoy, as usual, reminding them, as she always did, to give thanks at the temple. More out of habit than anything else, they smiled politely and did so. That night, none of them could sleep. It wasn't the strange sounds or the things in the shadows that kept them up, but an uneasy feeling. Later, they would all agree they felt like they were no longer welcome there. At around three in the morning, Ben would walk a couple of meters away from their tents to relieve himself. Just as he was done, from the corner of his eye, he saw something moving. Unlike the other times though, it wasn't something hidden in the shadows. What he saw was a flash of white. Ben whipped his head around, hoping against all hope that it was just his imagination, but instinctively knowing better. Everywhere he turned, he only caught glimpses of the pale hem of a dress moving almost silently in the dark among the trees. Finally, he stood his ground, refusing to budge. He took a breath to keep his tone level and said to whatever was taunting him that he wasn't scared and that the sun deity would protect him. From nowhere and all around him, 
a voice that sounded like nails on a chalkboard whispered, Tapi, prapalama lagi. But for how long more? Ben ran back to the tents and woke his friends, telling them to pack up. They protested, saying it was still 3.30 in the morning and there was nowhere for them to go. But Ben insisted. A short while later, the three of them stood in front of the Temple of the Sun Deity. Next to the temple stood Auntie Sumoy. Come, she said to them. Come, here safe. Ben only ever went back to the island once more before it officially turned into what it is today. It was in September of 1986. By then, almost all of the island's residents had left for the mainland. But on that morning, when he arrived on Tekong, Ben wasn't at all surprised to see Auntie Sumoy seemingly waiting for him. Time and experience had made Ben a smarter man, a wiser man. Possibly, for the first time ever, not out of habit, but out of genuine respect, Ben greeted the old woman warmly. She replied, You are here as part of the procession. Ben nodded and made his way to the Temple of the Sun Deity, where many former residents, together with the help of army personnel, were moving the last of the temple's idols to its new home in Badok. When the temple and the crowd gathered around it came into view, Ben whispered to the deity, to its temple, to the island itself, Thank you for your protection. Ben tells me that he's been back a number of times since then for his son and grandson's national service. He says that he doesn't have that unwelcome feeling there anymore and that whatever the army did certainly seemed to have worked. But he adds that he has never felt as safe as he did in the early 70s. I nod and thank him for sharing his story. Just as another group of National Service boys pass our table, talking about the sergeants, their physical fitness tests, and something about a lady in white. Jeffrey asked me to sit on the other side of the table. Ask him why. But he mumbles out a barely coherent reply. I shrug and oblige, shifting seats. Then that I noticed the difference. The seat I was in faced the wall plastered with beer ads with hardly anybody passing by. The seat I shifted to faces the crowds walking up and down the pavement next to the coffee shop on this sunny Sunday morning. I look back at Jeffrey and nod slightly, trying to put him at ease to show that I acknowledge his discomfort. He can't even meet my gaze. Jeffrey's eyes twitch every few seconds. It's not obvious enough that you notice if you weren't paying attention, but it's there. I, I c- can't. Faces, he tries to explain to me. I tell him it's okay. I say, just tell me where your story starts. 
Jeffrey lived in Upper Serangoon Road for about two years now. His mother moved into one of the newer condominiums after her divorce was finalized. Nothing out of the ordinary had happened before this one particular Saturday. Jeffrey thought his younger brother, Ernest, had gone off for a camping trip with some friends to Pulau Ubin early in the morning. When he woke up, though, hungover, bleary-eyed, Jeffrey was startled by his sibling. Ernest was standing across the hallway from him at his own bedroom door. He wore a scowl on his face that didn't seem particularly menacing. It still disconcerted Jeffrey a little. Part of it was that Ernest was breathing heavily but was otherwise standing completely still. What troubled Jeffrey the most, though, was that Ernest wasn't staring directly at him, just in his general direction. What's your problem? Jeffrey asked, shrugging off his unease and sizing Ernest up the way brothers do. Nothing. No reply. No movement. Just the skull. Not the mood for a sibling silent tantrum, and certainly not at ten in the morning. Jeffrey cursed at him, headed to the kitchen for breakfast. When he came back, Ernest wasn't outside his room anymore. Jeffrey peeked through the open door to see Ernest standing in a corner. His scowl was replaced by a malicious grin. His eyes still didn't focus directly on Jeffrey. His shoulders rose and dropped as he continued breathing heavily. Are you okay? Jeffrey asked, hesitantly. Call? was all Ernest replied, calling out to his older brother in a tone that contrasted the expression on his face. Ernest sounded scared, even as he continued to grin in Jeffrey's direction. What's wrong? Jeffrey ventured. Call? Ernest replied, terror still in his voice. Ernest, Jeffrey said, taking a step into the room. But the moment he crossed the threshold, Ernest's expression reverted back to a skull. Unconsciously, Jeffrey took a step back out of the room. He stared at his brother for a while longer. He finally shook off his worry as best as he could and closed the door behind him. I showered, knocked on my mom's door to say goodbye to her, and I just left. Jeffrey tells me, sipping a Coke that I helped him order. Throughout the day, I keep thinking about the looks he gave me. I asked Jeffrey where he went that day, and he says that he just wandered around. It didn't matter where he went. He just don't want to be at home. Eventually, though, Jeffrey did return home. It was 6.30 in the evening, and comforting sounds of his mother cooking in the kitchen greeted him as he walked in. He yelled a greeting to his mother as he headed to his bedroom to change. He stopped in front of Ernest's door first. It was closed, just like he left it. He opened the door, slowly, 
No one. He sighed with relief and went to get changed. He came back out of the kitchen and exchanged pleasantries with his mother before asking her, What's Ernest's problem? She asked him what he was talking about. This morning, Jeffrey said. He looked moody as shit. Did his Ubin thing get cancelled? His mother's face went pale. She looked him dead in the eyes. Said that Ernest left for Ubin the evening before. And he'd been there since. We tried calling him and, and everything. We couldn't get through, Jeffrey tells me, his eyes darting around, the twitch more pronounced now. When he came back, he told us that he was having problems on Ubin. I tell him that I'm planning to interview Ernest next, about those problems. I ask him if he wants to stay, but he quickly declines. I, I, I can't. I can't. He stammers. And I tell him it's okay if he has to be somewhere else. Jeffrey tells me he doesn't have anywhere else to be. He tells me that he moved out of the apartments on Upper Serangoon Road soon after the incident. He hasn't seen his brother since. But he still thinks he sees his face sometimes. Out of the corner of his eye. Always grinning. Or scowling. Jeffrey stands up, kicking his chair back to the ground and shuffles away. I try to stop him, but he's gone before I can get a word out. So I sit back down, stare out at the Sunday morning passerbys, going up and down the pavement next to the coffee shop. My appointment with his brother isn't for another ten minutes, but I could swear I spot his face a couple times in the crowd. Marie comes over with two piping hot cups of coffee. Coffee, she had told me when she arrived, has been in a family for generations. So she insisted that I let her order and pay for it. I argue that she's here to help me, so I should at least pay for our drinks. But she has none of it. She tells me that I'm keeping a bit of her family history alive. I ask her about that as she takes a seat. This was not the first time I'd asked her to meet, but every time before, she had turned me down. She tells me that her grandfather had died just last month. She says that she had never been sensitive, making finger quotes as she says that word, but she loves her grandfather's stories about his time in Bahao. She looks off into the distance wistfully and she turns back to me with a smile and says that I was probably the best person to keep this one particular story alive. I return a smile and tell her to start from the beginning. The beginning was the Japanese occupation. Her grandfather was about 10 at this time. The Eurasians, she tells me, were part of this thing called the self-sufficiency scheme. Long story short, 
a lot of them moved to a settlement in Bahau, up in Negri Sembilan. Most of them became farmers. Her great-grandfather, however, set up a little stall that served coffee and toast. He was a smart guy, she explains. Because while a lot of the other Eurasians weren't familiar with farming, he already had a little coffee place back in Singapore. She says that he had convinced the Japanese of his idea by placing his coffee shop right in the middle of one of the patrol routes. The officers were wary. But the men, however, were ecstatic about having a nice little respite during their rounds. Her grandfather would, of course, help out at the coffee shop, learning from his own parents the best way to make the coffee, but customizing it for each soldier's tastes. And because of the homely atmosphere, the men were a little more relaxed around her grandfather and his family, letting down their guard a bit more, blurring the lines a little between the oppressors and the oppressed. Her grandfather, she tells me solemnly, had seen a lot of terrible things during the war. But his time at Bahau helped tip the scales a little and made him the gentle soul she remembered him for. Marie is getting misty-eyed, so I switch off the recorder for a second and asks if she would like to continue. I offer her some tissues, which she accepts, and shakes her head and says that she's totally fine to continue. She points out to me that while many parts of Bahau were cleared by the locals prior to the war, there were still many thickly forested areas. The patrol route was one such area. Her grandfather could never remember which came first. It either started with the soldiers getting scratched by unseen assailants during the patrols, or with them getting temporarily lost on what had been previously familiar routes to them. The officers blamed Marie's great-grandfather at first, but the men stood by him, thankfully. A lot of the soldiers believe that demons or spirits had followed them from Japan. Marie says that her grandfather had another theory. He thought that whatever it was that attacked them, it belonged to Bahau and to Malaysia. And it wanted them out. His theory, she tells me, holds a bit more weight, especially considering what happened when it all came to a head. It was an evening patrol and seemed pretty uneventful when the five Japanese soldiers stopped to rest at the coffee shop. One cup with less sugar, one cup with extra milk, and three normal cups. She smiles when she tells me that her grandfather couldn't really remember the details of that night, but he always remembered two things very clearly. 
the first was what the soldiers ordered. After their break, the soldiers got up to leave. One of them remarked about how much darker it was that evening. But one of the other men shushed him. As they reached the forest, however, the first man in the patrol was knocked down by some unseen force. He got up again, dusted himself off, and told the other men that it was nothing. But that was the other thing that Marie's grandfather remembered clearly from that night. The look on the face of that man as he tried to convince his fellow soldiers to move forward. See, he had seen coldness in the eyes of some of the Japanese soldiers, both in Bahau and back in Singapore. He had seen genuine humanity and care in the eyes of others. But he had never seen any of them scared. The soldiers tried taking different routes. But the result was always the same. Pushed back by some unseen presence. Some more forcibly than others. After several attempts, the soldiers huddled down around one of the coffee shop's tables, pleading with Marie's great-grandfather and his family to stay with them. So, they did. An hour passed, and the Japanese soldiers started to relax. Not enough to try to head back to their base, but enough to order another round of coffee to get comfortable again. But then, a wind seemed to start up, rustling the tops of the trees. The soldiers paid it no mind, until they heard the screaming in the wind. Not fearful screams, but screams of anger. Screams that told the soldiers that they didn't belong there. The wind and the screaming grew louder. So loud that even Marie's grandfather and his family didn't feel exempt from the wrath of whatever waited for them in that forest. Marie's grandfather had an idea. Quietly, he whispered to the presence in the forest. He whispered to it in Bahasa to please spare them. He told the presence, Kami tak mau brother di sini. We don't want to be here. He looked at the Japanese soldiers and added, Mereka tak mau brother di sini juga. They don't want to be here either. He whispered it over and over until the wind died down and the screams became angry moans. And those angry moans became whispers. Until finally, silence. Morning eventually came, and the soldiers cautiously tried to head back to their base. 
whatever had stopped them the night before was gone. They left, thanking Marie's great-grandfather and his family profusely. Two days later, some Japanese officers told Marie's great-grandfather that he had to close up his coffee shop. He never asked why. Two weeks later, the Japanese surrendered and the settlers returned to Singapore. Marie tells me that her grandfather remembered not being scared at all that night. He had made friends of the soldiers and memorized their orders. But he understood that whatever that presence was, he was sending a bigger message. Marie says that, if anything, her grandfather might have been the only reason that those men even managed to get out of there alive. She looks off wistfully again, so I ask her how she feels. Good, she tells me, with a genuine smile. And then adds on that she also feels weird. For a second there, she says, it felt like her grandfather was telling the story through her. She asked me if, if that makes sense at all. I tell her that it does. And her grandfather sounds like a wonderful man. Desmond fiddles with his crucifix as he orders a copio, almost like a security blanket. He looks around nervously as I place my recorder on the table. I ask him if he's alright three times before he looks at me with a lost look on his face. He apologizes and says it's fine. He says he's just nervous. That's all. I'm apparently the first person he's talked to about this incident outside of my contact, Father Aloysius. I've known Aloysius for years, back when I did this even more regularly than I do now. He's a man who has many stories, but this one is in his to tell. This is Desmond's. Scorpio arrives and he stirs it absently. I assure him that it's all right, that he could tell me where the incident happened. He tells me he lives in Jalankayu, but he's not sure if that's where things started. Tell me where it started then, I say, as soothingly as I can manage. His friends had invited him and his wife, Melissa, out for drinks at a bar in Sembawang. It was in a lesser developed area, so they had to drive to get there. That, he assures me suddenly, is how he knows he wasn't drunk and the incident happened. I remind him that I'm not someone who's prone to skepticism about these sorts of things. He nods slowly. He clearly doesn't believe me yet, but he continues. He says that the drive to and fro was through an area with lots of trees and only a simple dirt road. He got lost a couple times ended up at some small construction site or at a dead end. But eventually, 
they found a bar. This was at around 7.30. They had dinner, one or maybe two drinks, hung out for a while, then headed home at around 10.30. On the drive back, he noticed how the dirt path was barely lit. They got a little lost again. At one point, they heard a scratching noise from the roof of their car. They assumed it was low-hanging branches. Eventually, they made it out and were on the expressway back to their place. Their home was a more-than-modest landed property. On either side, a row of bushes and trees as tall as the house. On the sloping driveway was Desmond's basketball. As the gate opened, Desmond noticed a rustling in the bushes on the left of the house. He laughs. He remembers, clearly joking Melissa, how weird it would be if their dog Max came running out from somewhere else. But as the gate closed, Max walked slowly out of their front door. Desmond and Melissa were a little freaked out, but reasoned that it was maybe an animal from somewhere around the neighborhood. Stray cat, dog, even a snake. This was Jalan Kayu, after all. Melissa made her way into the house, googling the number for animal control. And that's when Desmond caught a whiff of Frangie Penny. He broke from a story for a moment to tell me that he doesn't normally believe in this sort of thing. He tells me he's Catholic and he knew all about possessions, exorcisms, but this frangy penny thing, he says, is so... Kampong, I suggest. He nods, slowly. He continues with this story. He didn't say anything to Melissa. He didn't see a need to. It was just a flowery smell, that's, that's all. Strange, sure, but nothing to be alarmed about. That was until he saw his basketball slowly roll up the driveway slope. He tried not to panic, but that was when the rustling got louder, almost as if whatever was in there could sense his fear. Desmond ran into the house and shut the door. He told Melissa to stop calling animal control and start calling Father Aloysius. Why a priest? she asked him. But he could tell that she knew. She only asked because she hoped that he'd say it was a joke or that he misspoke. Just call him, he said. Desmond starts saying the rosary. When Melissa's done with the call, she joins him. He takes a sip of his copio, the first one he's taken since his drink arrived. The funny thing is, he says to me, is that he never expected that something like this would happen to someone like him. He tells me that he's a good Catholic, not, not just a name. He doesn't just go to church, he says. He also doesn't gossip about the other parishioners. He tries to lead his life by the words of the Bible. But even then, even after 28 years of being a good Catholic, Somehow, this still happened to him. He stares off into the distance for a while. And Father Aloysius, he says suddenly. Father Aloysius arrived at Desmond and Melissa's 20 minutes later. 
Desmond had always gone to the Immaculate Heart of Mary Church since he was a kid and even after he had moved out of the Serangoon area. So the old priest was a familiar face. Father Aloysius, Desmond stresses to me, looked perfectly calm, even after he had told them what had happened. The priest headed to the bushes where the rustling was. He started saying prayers in Latin, splashing holy water into the bushes. The priest's prayers got louder and louder, and with each line it seemed like whatever was in those bushes was going to leap out and tear Loisius apart. But the old priest wouldn't move, wouldn't flinch. His expression, Desmond tells me, was exactly the same as when he arrived. Calm, polite. But his voice... And just like that it was done. No more rustling, no more snarling. Father Aloysius asked if he could have some tea. Melissa ran to the kitchen to make him a cup. The priest calmly told Desmond that he'll need to say a full decade of the rosary every day for at least a month. He smiled genially and also told him that he should be careful where he goes and what he picks up. Because you can never be too sure what still lurks around Singapore, I say. Desmond looks at me stunned. He tells me that's exactly what the priest said to him. I simply smile. Desmond stares off into the distance again, fiddling with his crucifix. I realize now that's not that it's a safety blanket for him. Not anymore. All that fiddling with the item is him trying to come to grasp with the part of his faith he had very little understanding or knowledge of. I tell him that I have all I need and turn off my recorder. I thank him and he mumbles something in response. As I'm about to leave, I decided to do the man a favor. Hey, talk to Aloysius about this, I tell him. The old man can help you beyond these simple instructions. How do you know that? How could you possibly know what I'm going through? He asks, not defensively, but, but almost hopelessly. And I tell him that I went through something similar when I was younger. And Aloysius helped me. He looks at me for a moment and sees some truth in my words. He thanks me, his voice a little steadier than before. And I finally leave. When I arrive at the coffee shop, Rizal's already got a half-finished plate of mutton biryani, an egg prata, and a mug of Milo dinosaur in front of him. He lets off a boisterous laugh when he sees my bewildered expression, then explains that he was a rugby player back in school. So he's used to piling on the food to bulk up. Naturally though, that love of food just grew over time. He says, patting his slight paunch. It was that love, however, that resulted in his unfortunate encounter. I order myself a kopi, politely decline when he offers me his prata, then ask him to start from the beginning. The beginning, Rizal tells me, was about 10 years ago. 
Back then, that whole stretch from Selita Airport to the old army base just off Jalan Kayu was still being developed. There was a small residential community, sure, but you'd find little else besides thickly forested areas and empty pre-war buildings. There were, however, a handful of bars and restaurants that had already opened up. Rizal and a couple of his buddies had heard about a place near the flying club that served super spicy chicken wings. So they set off in Rizal's car around 5.30 one evening to give the place a try. Unfortunately, they only had a very rough idea of where the place was. Twice on the way over, they took a wrong turn and ended up in the middle of construction sites. Rizal's friends jokingly chided him over his sense of direction. But eventually, they found the place. It was a good evening, Rizal recalls fondly. Lots of laughs, lots of spicy wings, and lots of milk to help with that spice. By around nine, the group was ready to head back. They got into the car and drove off. But soon realized that the roads weren't very well lit. The drive started with his friends chiding him again. But after a while, everyone in the car went silent. Every turn that Rizal took seemed to be the wrong one. His friends tried to help with suggestions, pointing out that certain landmarks looked somewhat familiar. But no matter what their suggestions were, they always ended up in a dead end. Down a seemingly endless forested area, or again, in the middle of a construction site. After countless wrong turns, and going down similar roads several times over, the group drove down a bendy dirt path and ended up in yet another construction site. This time, however, one of Rizal's buddies, Joey, pointed out a light in the distance. Joey figured that it was a way out and encouraged Rizal to drive towards it. But something didn't feel right to Rizal. It didn't glow like normal lights, he tells me. The jovial demeanor of his slipping away slightly. It was like looking at a light through the haze, you know? Still, he drove forward, slowly, figuring it was worth giving it a shot, since nothing else seemed to be getting them out. As they got closer though, Joey, who was sitting in the front passenger seat, turned pale. Rizal looked ahead and still could only see the light in the distance. But Joey started insisting, in panicked but hushed tones, that they needed to go back the way they came. Rizal, already feeling uneasy about the situation, didn't argue headed a three-point turn as quickly as he could. Just before 
He could get the car to face the direction from which they came, however. He noticed that the light was moving towards them. And just as he put the gear into drive, Rizal saw what Joey had seen. A woman's head, her guts entangled around its spine, and nothing else. The creature turned its head towards their direction and finally noticed the group. The last thing Rizal saw before he hit the accelerator and sped out of the construction site was her face, snarling hungrily as she floated towards them. Rizal kept driving for about a minute or so more, taking turns seemingly at random. His other two friends in the back seat kept asking what was going on. Neither Joey nor Rizal was in the right frame of mind to tell them. Finally, seemingly out of nowhere, Rizal saw the lights of Jalan Kayu up ahead in the distance and kept driving forward as fast as he could. Just as he left the Salita area, he risked one last look in his rear-view mirror. Off behind them, in the distance, was that light, seemingly shrouded in a haze. But it wasn't following them. Rizal takes a deep breath, then seemingly shrugs off his more somber demeanor. Quite a story, right, bro? He says, patting my shoulder. I agree. Then ask him if he ever went back there. He says he never did, but weakly jokes that the chicken was too spicy for him anyway. I chuckle along, helping him to hide his discomfort. Indran and I got to know each other during our national service. Well, we were both drivers in an artillery unit. He was assigned to a reconnaissance detail, while I was part of the main group. Still, we both managed to bond quite quickly during our smoke breaks. And little has changed since then. We're at the smoking area of a coffee shop in Ishun, catching up on what we'd both been doing since we'd finished our cycles. He'd move into the construction business and I, well, that's why we met up today. He tells me that he's surprised that I didn't hear about these incidents during one of our outfield exercises. I remind him that everyone was pretty busy with their own details at the time. We switched topics for a while, laughing and joking about old dummy buddies that we served with. Eventually, the laughs die down and I turn to Indran and ask if he's ready to tell the story. He nods, so I ask him to start from the beginning. It was one of our last reservist cycles, so this was probably 2011. 
Indran was driving a 1.5 tonner as part of a recce party during an exercise in Thailand in a heavily forested stretch near the town of Kanchanaburi. The party consisted of himself and a team of three surveyors that included two sergeants named Dominic and Max and a lieutenant named Daryl. It was late in the afternoon on the first day of the exercise, around 3pm, when the party received orders to head to a specific area in the forest. Judging by the 1.5 tonner's odometer, the ride hadn't been a particularly long one, but it felt like quite a distance to Indran and the two sergeants. When they arrived at the designated location, what caught their attention immediately was that it was across a small river from an abandoned resort. Its building's exteriors were clearly all bright yellow ones. Who knew how many years ago? But wear and tear over time had turned them into a gloomy shade of off-white with hints of mossy green. As they alighted their vehicle, however, the party was suddenly hit by an unnatural chill. Indran figured it must have dipped to about 13 degrees Celsius. Just as suddenly, almost immediately after the drop in temperature, it started to rain. A light drizzle at first that then quickly turned into a full-blown downpour. Later on, Endran and the sergeants would ask some of the Thai soldiers attached to their unit if they'd ever experienced that kind of weather before. They all gave the three men perplexed looks and shook their heads. Lafton and Daryl ordered them to get back into the vehicle and for Indran to cross the river so that they could take shelter under the awning at the entrance of the resort's foyer. One of the sergeants, probably Max, told the lieutenant that that was against protocol, that the unit's commanding officer had specifically said not to enter any buildings Wild outfield. CO's not here, right? Was the officer's curt response as he waved off the sergeant. So Indran and the team quietly loaded back up to the 1.5 tonner and drove across the river. The lieutenant, clearly aware that if they were caught breaking protocol, he'd be the one that would have to answer for it ordered Indran to park the vehicle next to the river instead of under the awning. The four men then sprinted across two metres between the vehicle and the resort. For about an hour, as the rain beat down, they just rested at the porch, each taking turns to stand guard. Lefton and Daryl 
tried a couple of times to report back to the rest of the unit at first, but all he managed to get on every channel was static. He thought he'd heard something at one point through the static, but Indran said that it sounded too much like an old woman though, repeating, Sawarikab, Sawarikab, towards the end of the hour. The rain started to subside, while Dominic, the more timid of the two sergeants, was on guard. Suddenly, Max woke and stood up, seemingly in a trance of some kind. Max then started to walk past the resort's reception area, out towards the back. Dominic tried to call out to him. Max didn't respond, so he quickly woke Lefton and Daryl and Indran up and ran after Max. Dominic managed to catch up to his fellow sergeant and pulled Max back just before the entranced soldier could walk off a cliff. Indran and Dominic slapped Max splash water into his face, eventually waking him from his unnatural stupor. Lefton and Daryl, however, just stood by, kept asking what was going on. Max explained to them that he heard an old woman calling out to him. She was speaking in Thai, but he instinctively knew that she was saying come here come here he tried to resist her but couldn't Dominic turned to Lefton Darrow and with more conviction than Indran had ever seen in him said that they needed to rejoin the rest of the unit immediately the officer hummed and hawed, but eventually relented. Indran lights another cigarette and takes a sip of his coffee. I knew Dominic too, and mentioned that this explains why he seemed so different during the reserve cycle that followed this one. Indran says that it wasn't just this incident, though that would have been bad enough. He says that the following evening, something else happened. The party was at a different area, further down that same river. Derecki had gone off without a hitch, and they were going to head back to rejoin the rest of the unit. They all got back into the vehicle and headed back in the direction that they'd come from, with Lefton and Darrow guiding and drawn according to their map. Soon, sunlight started to fade, and the drive, once again, seemed to go on for longer than Indran thought it should have. The officers started to complain, started to blame Indran for their lengthy journey. Indran, as calmly as he could, pointed out that 
he was very precisely following his instructions. And besides, Indran added, they had driven along the river to get there and they were driving back along it to return to the unit. There was no way they were lost. Lieutenant Darrell grumbled some more and said that he wanted to stop for a rest. Indran advised against it, but Darrell insisted. So he said that after he made a turn up ahead, he'd stop the vehicle. Indran tells me that that was probably the biggest mistake he could have made. After the turn and across the river was a small, seemingly empty village. The lieutenant didn't pay it any mind, getting out and relieving himself against the tree. But Indran and the two sergeants, without saying a word to each other, each put on their berets and said a silent prayer to their own gods. As the officer was buttoning up his trousers, out from the shadows of the village came an old woman. She didn't say anything. But Indran, Dominic, and Max all realized that they knew what she sounded like. Max, more so than the other two. The sergeant started shaking uncontrollably and without taking his eyes off the old woman, climbed back into the vehicle. Dominic followed him and again insisted that we get moving. The lieutenant wanted to argue, but saw the look on Max's face. Almost immediately, Andron and him scrambled back into the vehicle. See, it took them 30 minutes earlier to get to their recce area. But it took them three hours to get back to the unit. And through that whole ride, Nathan and Daryl kept looking back over his shoulder. He seemed annoyed at first. As the ride continued, he started to grow quieter and quieter. Later on, Indran would overhear him telling another officer that something kept pulling his uniform, as if trying to yank him out of the vehicle. He thought it was the sergeants at first, but when he saw that Indran had tightly sealed the canopy of the 1.5 tonner, he realized that it was something else entirely. The commanding officer yelled at Daryl when they returned. He said that he sent out two Land Rovers to look for the party. The lieutenant tried to explain that they had followed the river back and that something wasn't right. CO didn't believe him at first and said that the Land Rovers had followed the river in the search. So there's no way they could have missed them. When Indran and the sergeants chimed in and backed the officer up, the CO eyed all four men for a moment before calmly telling them to go grab their dinner and turn in 
for the rest of the night. The four of them never went out for another recce for the rest of the exercise. Andron tells me that while Max had changed since then, he wasn't crippled by what had happened. He pauses for a moment to light another cigarette. I ask him about Daryl. He smiles. No one's seen him since we finished reservice, he says. He tells me that he's heard rumors about him. Had a mental breakdown. His elderly parents look after him now. Keeps claiming something is coming for him. But those are just rumors, he tells me. I nod and lit my own cigarette without a word. When I arrive at the East Coast Lagoon Food Village, Neil's finishing up his second egg brother. It's nine in the morning and he'd already gone for an hour-long run along East Coast Park before this. Helps work up an appetite for breakfast, he says, standing up to greet me. I shake his hand, order myself a copio, and take a seat. He asks if the black coffee's because I've had a long night, or whether it's too early in the day for me. I chuckle and tell him that I don't usually meet my interviewees in the morning, so yes, this is a bit new for me. He laughs, then asks if it helps with the atmosphere to tell these types of stories at night. A little, I reply with a smile. He tells me that he won't need any coaxing that telling these stories feels as natural to him as talking about his own family. I ask him to start at the beginning. But he says he can do better than that. How about, he asks, if I start with my father instead? It was 1972. Neil's Uncle Terence was in his mid-teens when he moved out on his own. Terence had a penchant for gambling, which created a rift between him and his mother, one that they never fully recovered from. To survive and feed his habit, he took odd jobs and shared a dirt-cheap second-floor shophouse unit down on Frankel Avenue with two of his friends. Neil's father, Justin, was 18 at the time. He was still close to Terence, so he'd meet up with Terence and his flatmates for drinks every couple of days. Justin would head to the Frankel Avenue place first, since he kept office hours, but the rest of them would only knock off at around 10 o'clock. Most of the time, he'd just shower, read a book, maybe even start drinking a little before they came back. There was one particular evening, however. The sun was just setting when Justin arrived at the flat. He went about his usual routine, but around an hour later, he started to hear something creaking. 
in the back room. He brushed it off at first. His imagination, he figured. Or maybe some noise from below. After all, the back room faced a busy alleyway. But as the evening went on, the noise grew louder. And the apartment grew colder. It was an unnatural chill. Justin knew that. Not some welcome evening breeze. He switched all the lights on in the main area and the single bedroom that the three men shared. The creaking grew louder still. Finally, he took a deep breath. Master Sphere, with a brave face, more for himself than anyone or anything else, and headed to the back room. The creaking seemed almost deafening as he stood in front of the room. Cautiously, he turned the knob, then flung the door open. Almost immediately, he started shivering. The cold was different there, still unnatural, sure, but also biting. Neil tells me that his father described it as angry. I know what he means. The sounds seem to be coming from the corner of the room. The second before he whipped his head in that direction, Justin could have sworn that the moonlight shining through the window cast a shadow against the wall of something swinging from the ceiling. When Justin flicked the lights on, though, he saw that there was nothing and no one there. Just a bed that hadn't been slept in for a long while. The creaking sound stopped, but the biting cold remained. Justin looked around the room, refusing to physically acknowledge the cold. Instead, in as steady and as stern a voice as he could muster, he just yelled out loud, There's someone home! He closed the door, headed back to the main area, shakily lit a cigarette and opened a bottle of beer. The cold eventually died away, and soon after, Terence was home. Justin never did tell his brother what happened that evening, not until after Terence had moved out of the house. When Terence heard the story, he laughed. Why do you think we managed to rent it dirt cheap? He said. Suicide? I asked Neil. He nods. A young woman. A teenager, probably. No older than Terence was, at the time, had hung herself in that flat. Two years before Terence and his friends moved in. We both sit. Quiet for a moment. Finally, I turn to Neil with a slight smile and say, that must have been quite a yell your dad had. Neil's expression softens up. It's a yell I remember all too well from when I was growing up. He takes a sip of his tea and continues. There were a few more stories from the 70s, he tells me, 
but Neil wanted to jump to 1985. Neil was about three at this time. Justin had left his more freewheeling days behind him at the turn of the 80s, after Terence had died. After all, he was a dad now, but he still enjoyed a drink of two every now and then. He met up with an old friend, David, one of Terence's flatmates, one evening. They had a few laughs for a little while, but got to talking about Terence inevitably. Justin drank a little more than he should, and rather than he head home to his wife, he chose to crash on David's sofa. Like old times at Frankel Avenue, David said. Justin laughed weakly. The two men stumbled back to David's second-story flat, near the Badot Market, at around 2.30 in the morning. David tossed Justin a pillow and a blanket and started towards his bedroom. When David called him over to the balcony, there was a playground across the street, one of those that you don't see in around anymore, a pit of sand, monkey bars, and two slides. Standing at the foot of one of those slides, however, were the silhouettes of two children, a boy and a slightly taller girl. Justin asked David if he saw them too. His friend merely nodded. It was close to 3am at this point, and Justin's first thought wasn't how bizarre the whole situation was. All that went through his head was that those kids shouldn't have been out at the playground at that hour. Justin didn't notice the look of concern on David's face as he left the flat and took the stairs two at a time. All he was thinking was that maybe he could help those kids get home. He would tell Neil later that through his lingering stupor, all he was thinking about were Neil and his siblings in that moment. But when he reached the ground floor, he looked across the street and the kids weren't there. Justin knew that he couldn't have scattered that quickly and there was no sign of them anywhere else. He went back upstairs to see if David knew where they went. Instead, he found David shaking on the couch. He was about to ask him what was wrong when he himself felt an unnatural chill slowly pass through the flat. Immediately, Justin knew what was troubling David, and he knew who that girl was. Neil says that, after years of hearing those stories, he thinks that the boy was Terence, as his father remembered him, not the teenager that ran away from home, but the little boy that he used to look after. I ask him whether his father feels the same way, and he says that his father still isn't sure what to think. I don't think the girl was malicious at all, he says thoughtfully. He then adds, I think she just wanted attention back at Frankel Avenue to finally be heard or noticed instead of alone. And that second time, I think she wanted to make it up to Dad. Let him know that that Terence was all right. I tell Neil that that's a nice sentiment. 
and I'd like to believe that that's true too. I thank him for sharing his stories. But he raises a hand to stop me before I can get up. He smiles at me and says, Those are just my dad's stories though. Now let me tell you mine. It's close to noon when Neil orders another tea for himself and another kopi o for me. He's already t- and he's got a couple more of his own to share. Princes, I tell him that most people I know have one or two at most. That I don't usually meet anyone with more. He thinks people have more to offer than they might suspect. He tells me that it's just been easier for his family to admit the truth that what they have experienced can't necessarily be explained away by logic sometimes i don't disagree with him and offer up a knowing smile our drinks arrive i ask him to tell me about his stories to tell me what he's experienced it was the late 90s he starts things were going well for neil's family they moved into a considerably larger flat along lorong asu in 1995 the new home was just a start though neil's father received the promotion at work and even enjoyed a couple of small lottery wins so when he found an injured bird with a beautiful song he just assumed it was the universe delivering another win for him he nursed the bird back to health and every morning the family would wake up to that beautiful song but a month later neil's father was accused of stealing from work two weeks after that His mother lost her job and a week after that his grandmother passed away suddenly through all the tragedy and hardship every morning the bird greeted them with its beautiful song a song that neil's father was starting to suspect wasn't as sweet as it seemed Neil had just finished his O-level exams at the time and was taking a break till his results came in. His parents had taken a short vacation to Johor. So he called his friend Anesh over one afternoon for video games. And at some point during that afternoon, Neil's father called up. Let the bird go, he told Neil without any explanation. Neil tried to push him for more but his father simply insisted and then hung up It was a sunny afternoon Neil recalls not a cloud in the sky and from my balcony window I had a clear view of the entire street he continues He says that he's telling me this because he wants me to know that what happened next happened out of nowhere Neil took the bird's cage down from where it hung 
in their living room. He took it to the balcony window and casually said his goodbyes, joking with Dinesh that the bird probably had enough of the family by now anyway. He opened the cage door and cautiously the bird hopped onto the window and then flew out. It got barely a meter away when four large crows swooped out of nowhere and pulled it apart. Neil dropped the cage, stunned. Dinesh tried to assure him that it wasn't his fault, but Neil was in too much shock to respond. A week later, Neil's mother found a new job at a rival company. A week after that, Neil's father was cleared off the accusations, and things started settling down again for the family. But all the way till the end of that year, Neil could have sworn that every once in a while, he'd still hear the birds' unnervingly beautiful song. I ask him what he thinks it was, and he shrugs. He says, I get the sense that sometimes, some things just have a bad energy to them. I ask if he thinks that bad energy might come from beyond this world. He says that it could be. Then he adds that he's seen enough to believe that anything might be possible. I ask him, but what else he has seen? By 2005, Neil was a supervisor at a security firm, overseeing guards at a number of locations, from malls to office buildings. One of those locations was a dorm in the north for foreign workers. He'd later find out that this particular building was hoisted upon him by his boss and several other supervisors simply because they didn't want to deal with its unique problem. On his first day at the dorm, his guards crowded around him and demanded to know what he was going to do about that unit. He asked what unit they were talking about and they called a guard named Hok Singh over. Singh, they said, had the third eye. The guard looked like he'd not had a good rest in a long time. He twitched nervously every once in a while, and his eyes darted back and forth, almost as if he was bracing himself for an attack of some kind. The other guards told Singh to bring Neil up to the unit. He protested a little at first, but eventually relented. The unit was on the third floor in the northernmost corner of the dorm. On their way up, Neil tried to comfort Singh. He told him not to worry, and he talked to the other guards about the way they treated him. Singh, in an almost vacant tone, 
said that it wasn't the other guards that he was scared of. Neil just nodded and continued up the stairs. The unit itself was a small, cramped space that was surprisingly gloomy, even during the day and with a window wide open. Neil tried to flip a light switch, but it wouldn't work. The only thing illuminating the unit was a red lantern hanging in the corner. Seng said, no one, not the guards or the workers, knew who hung that lantern. Neil walked in, but Seng stood outside, his eyes growing wide with fear. Neil knew exactly why too. The dorm was unnaturally cold. He described it just the way his father had described the back room of that old Frankel Avenue unit. Biting and angry. Neil walked towards the lantern, trying his best not to show Singh how frightened he was. As he reached the lantern, Singh started stammering, but couldn't get the words out. He looked at the guard and knew instinctively what he wanted to say. Where is it? Neil asked. Behind you, the guard whispered. Neil turned around just as he felt something brush against the back of his neck. He didn't need to ask Singh where it was now. He headed towards the unit's bedroom. The room was just as bitingly cold. Another gloomy, cramped space. Another red lantern in the corner. Neil called out for Singh a few times before the guard warily entered the unit and walked over. He refused to enter the bedroom. His eyes focused on the room's sole window. Is it there? Neil asked. The guard only nodded. Neil moved a little closer, but stopped when Seng flinched. He looked questioningly at the guard. Angry was all Seng could muster. Neil looked out the window and saw that this side of the dorm faced a dense forest. One that, despite all the development around the area, remained untouched. It's home, Neil presumed. Taking a cue from his father, Neil mustered up as much courage as he could to the window and said, This is not your home. Singh started sobbing quietly. Please, said Neil. Silence hung in the air as Neil kept quickly looking back at Singh to gain some clue from his reaction. Eventually, the sobbing stopped and Seng looked calmer. Neil closed the window 
knowing full well how little that gesture meant. And he was about to reach for the lantern to remove it when Singh yelled for him to stop. It's gone, Singh, he said. Singh just shook his head sadly. Always come back, he said. True enough, the dorm never stayed occupied for long. Foreign workers would complain to their supervisors, asking, demanding, even begging to be moved to another unit. Two months in, Neil requested that someone else take over the dorms. His bosses refused, so he quit. Neil tells me that he found work elsewhere pretty quickly. He says it just wasn't worth it, staying on at that place. Nothing really happened to me, but I knew enough from my dad's stories that I shouldn't have pushed my luck. I ask him what he thinks it was, and he says that there are still some things on this island that we can't put easy labels on. We both finish our drinks, and I thank him for his time. But before I get up to go, I ask him how he's managed to face all of these experiences and still keep his wits about him. Like I said, I tell him, most people I know only really had one of these. And as far as they know, a lot of them have been pretty shook up. He answers by telling me one last quick story. This time, about his grandfather back in the 50s. He says that his dad came from a big family. Five brothers, three sisters. So Neil's grandfather would wait up for everyone to get home. But even after everyone was back, his grandfather would just stand outside the front door, arms folded, staring intently at something. Their street was pitch dark at night, and a forest, much like the one opposite the dorm up north, sat across their home. There was no way that Neil's grandfather could have seen anything in that forest. But he kept staring anyway, almost as if he was standing guard, making sure that nothing would get to his family. And that, Neil tells me, is why he's not shaken by these stories. He says, I told you at the start that telling these stories feels as natural to me as talking about my own family. That's because these stories are so much a part of my family. I stand, shake his hand, and smile. And for the last time, I thank him for sharing his stories, his family's stories, and I leave. If you want to discover more of Southeast Asia's other side, subscribe now.